Welcome to New Day Podcast, a ministry of Redeemer Church of Madison. Join me, Pastor Gabe, for a weekly podcast devoted to discussions around church, theology, and practical issues we all face. Let's go. Redeemer Church, welcome. I hope you guys are doing well. I am joined in studio by Miss Chris. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> by Xander. Hey, hey, how's it going? And by Miss Alyssa. Hello. I hope everybody's doing well. I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. Miss Mertheline is not on this episode. So Boo. instantly, I would probably say 75% of you just turned off the podcast and didn't even try. Uh, we might talk about her, though. We could talk about her, but that was by far the best episode. I don't think we can ever beat Miss Mertheline's stories. And when she starts off the entire episode talking about sleeping in a tent with a, I can't remember if she said mouse or a rat. She said rat. Yeah. It's like you, you were hooked. I, who was not hooked at that story at that point? So um, you guys can be enjoying us in, in prayer. And, and uh, if you know Miss Mertheline, encourage her because we want a part two. Isn't that right? You think yes, she'll do it, Chris? Yeah, I think she will. You think so, Alyssa? I think so, too. Okay. And maybe even like a Miss Mertheline segment where we just ask her questions. Yeah, she gives did, us some. I did ask her if she would be open for that, and she said yes. Just call me, ask me a question, I'll give you an answer. An honest answer. Honest answer. Off the cuff, no no pre, no questions ahead of time, just this is it. Mm. Here's your question. I love it. I love it. So did y'all go back and listen to the interview? Yes. Yeah? A lot of times. What was your, Dan, did you listen to it again? I listened to it two other times. What was your, listening to it again, not live, what was your favorite part? When she said she was going to talk and um, let me get myself together. <laughs> compose yourself, yeah. That was my mom's favorite part. She's like, I loved it when she told her, told Chris to compose herself. Yeah, yeah that's what, what parents do. Get yourself together, Chris. Mm-hmm. I love it. What about you, Alyssa? I think my favorite part was when Lynette was talking about how she would... <clears throat> Sit outside with her and read yes um, books way beyond her level, and that was just such a picture of patience and mm. just a, a great picture of how to be a good mom. Yeah, yeah. Xander, yeah. what was your favorite part? So, unfortunately, it's also the reading portion. Yeah, um, I say unfortunately because it's not something unique. Alyssa just said it, but when I was a kid, my mom had to read to me a bunch of books because I wanted to hear the stories and keep up with my classmates. So it was very reminiscent of that. So, um, we, my mom wasn't doing laundry. I was, you know, sitting on the sofa. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that maternal level for that many kids is impressive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was tired just thinking of all the names you'd have to keep up with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did, did, did she call you your right name? Most of the time, sometimes, especially if, um, you were doing something you were not supposed to be doing, and she was trying to call somebody out quickly. Yeah, she would say the wrong name and go down the list, and she would then say, "You know who you are, and you know I'm talking to you." Mm. So, did you ever get in trouble? Oh no! What What was the biggest <laughs> trouble you got in as a kid? Putting you on the spot. Um, the biggest trouble. Well, I think the the thing I remember the most. It probably wasn't the biggest trouble I got in. But the thing I remember the most because I got in trouble for something I didn't do was when Charlene had her toe slammed in the door. 
and it was blamed on me, and I got in trouble for it. But I was not even in the house when it happened. <laughs> so who did it? And so I remember. I don't. I wasn't in there. I don't know. They never confessed. I took. I had to take the blame. What a picture of grace. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you fell on that sword. Easter is coming. <laughs> That's awesome. And, I, and as much as I said, I didn't do it. You know, it didn't really matter. You were that kid from, uh, what's the movie, Polar Express? Mm. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. With the dead eyes? And he was on the video mm-hmm. right mm. before the last package was done. You know what I'm talking about, yep. Alyssa. Polar oh. Express is a staple in our family. But Mama's theory was always, okay, well, you got in trouble for this that you didn't do, but how many things have you done that you didn't get in trouble for? So I'm, It all evens out in the end. It all evens out in the end, and I'm I'm still holding to my, you, you're getting punished. I'm okay with that. Because there's been plenty of things you've done that you didn't get punished for, so I'm not going to feel guilty for punishing you for this one. Hmm. Hmm. So, well, there's a little right. parenting tip. Yeah, well, I'll take it. <clears throat> I'll take it. <laughs> oh, man. So, what's what's going on in y'all's lives? Anything crazy exciting happening before we dive in? Dive in? Dive in? Dive? Well, we can't dive, dive in if we, we've already dove in. Isn't that what Carolee said to you one time? Yeah. She said, Dad, you already said dive in. You can't dive in again. Like, we do it at the pool every summer. But <laughs> over and over and over. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything new or interesting's happening in my world. Which what it's a blessing. A oh, yeah. What a blessing. Yeah. I'm so here for it. I mean, my nephew turned one <clears throat> and got to celebrate with the family. And so that was really exciting. You beat Mariah at pickleball yet? Only once. It it looks hilarious. She'll stand in the middle and I just run left and right, left and right, left and right, like a rabid dog. But I love pickleball. What a picture of marriage. Are you going to give us some pickleball lessons? Oh, 100%. 100%. I'm way too into it. Do we need special shoes, clothing, tools? No, you could probably play in flip-flops. <laughs> it's okay. the least athletic sport in the world. It's a uh, table tennis and ping pong. Fi- or, yeah, ping, table tennis and ping pong. Uh, same. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> Shows how articulate I am today. So it's ping pong and tennis, had a baby, um, and it's like meant for nursing homes. Okay, so I'm in. it's fantastic. You can play into your hundreds. I'm in. Mm. That can be part of the, the nursing home ministry we start. Yeah, Pick I can. Ball. Yeah. We'll sing uh, old hymns. This old rugged paddle. <laughs> old rugged oh, paddle. No, no, no. <laughs> Too far? Too far. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. Too far. Uh, All right, let's we digress. So, so uh, last week we had Seder dinner with Murray. Um, which I don't I don't know how many people that was their first time coming, but I think a, a, a fair okay, amount. Man. It was your first time. It was my first time doing Seder with Redeemer. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. Always appreciate Murray coming down and um, just us getting ready for the Passover. I, I mentioned before, it might have been that night. Just how it makes Jesus in the upper room and what they were doing so much more real and authentic. Mm-hmm. So much of the time we can read scripture and and almost not, and maybe this is just me, I don't want to project on anyone, but almost read it as a fiction. Like, oh, that's a good part of the story. But then when you learn about the nuts and bolts of the Seder dinner and like, no, that's not fiction. That actually happened. They actually did it. They reclined at the table. Like, like who was the, um, was it the Achman? Is that right? The, the piece that you hide? Yeah. Like, do you, do you think the, 
the disciples did that, you know, like still played a little Judas, game. <laughs> that's how Judas had the excuse to leave. That's how <laughs> Judas left. <laughs> oh, I think I saw the Agma go out the window. <laughs> I'll be right back, I'll y'all. Right back. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just all that stuff. It just makes you, makes me at least picture. That's a real moment mm-hmm. in history of Jesus celebrating that, and then how much how the the first communion just came alive. Um, yeah, if you hear a phone in the background. The studio is in the office. We are actual. We're not paid professionals. No, this is a live studio. Like, we do this. Actually. People call in to the show. Yeah, <laughs> we just don't take the calls. Yeah, sorry, caller. We're not to that part yet. So settle down. Uh, you're a little too early. Yeah. So any any other thoughts from Seder dinner from y'all? Big takeaways. I really enjoyed it. It was also my first time, so it was. Interesting. Oh, it was your first oh, one. I didn't okay. realize that. Yeah. Take it all in. So it was nice. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to close the door, uh, listeners. I tried to close the door, and I did not realize part of the whiteboard was in the way. So I became more of a problem. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So, Alyssa, I do. I forgot that it was your first time. Hey, compose yourself. Is that what Miss Berkeley said? Yes, yes. <laughs> compose yourself. Let, let me talk while you get yourself under control. Um, so, with it being your first time, uh, what was your big aha moment or, uh, yeah, revelatory? thing that took place it's a big question yeah um i think kind of what you said that first communion and Mm. just the picture of it being something that actually happened and it just it makes you look at communion a totally different way yeah i agree and that's a good kind of transition to easter we've got easter coming up in just a couple weeks um, so just to keep everyone in the loop, Good Friday service uh, will be a little different. I think we're looking at 6 p.m. It'll be a little different from what happened last year. And the core conviction, for me at least, is um, if we stick with history, Good Friday is the day that Jesus died. And um, to steal from Jonathan Edwards, uh, till sin be bitter, Christ not be sweet, we have to sit in the pangs of death for us to really understand just how important the resurrection was. And and so Good Friday service, why do they even call it good? What's the point of it? Um, we're shaping this one around the idea of a funeral. And uh, if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples of Mary and all that were standing there that in that moment felt like all hope was lost and had to sit in that weight and misery for Friday and Saturday uh, before Easter Sunday, before the resurrection. So, We'll be shaping Good Friday around that kind of idea, um, which, you know, like I said, last year we had the big night of worship, and it was incredible. Um, But I think this will hopefully allow us to get into the weekend a little deeper and and make the Resurrection Day of Easter be a little sweeter. So that'll happen 6 p.m. on Good Friday. And then on Easter, we have three different um, services happening. We have the first, which is the sunrise service, at 7.30 now, uh, sunrise last year at least was actually a little bit before, so you can get here at seven o'clock. You can get here six thirty, all you want to. Um, go down, go ahead and sit down at the pavilion and watch the sunrise take place, uh, and then the service will actually start at seven thirty, and then um, which will be different than the eight thirty and ten thirty. So there'll be a breakfast between the seven thirty and eight thirty, and then between the eight thirty and ten thirty, our hospitality team is killing it like they always do. 
that was one of my favorite parts of Seder dinner was the lasagna. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it was so good. Would you say fourteen pounds of cheese? Fourteen pounds of cheese. cheese. Fourteen, 14 pounds? pounds of cheese is what she said was in each tray. What wait, what what in each tray? Each tray. How many trays were there? I have no idea. It's a lot of cheese. That's so much cheese. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So hospitality killed that. They'll wow. do another incredible job on Easter. So highly recommend, and I, and I mentioned this yesterday, statistically, uh, people will come to church with you if you just invite them. And coming into Easter, um, it's. I mean, can we just do a little hot take pet peeve? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, Christians that give people a hard time for only coming to church on Christen, Christmas and Easter. It's like, I, I, on one hand, I get it, but uh, since when has shame ever made you better in the long run? So let's not shame people for uh, not being consistent. Let's encourage them to be consistent, and let's invite them to Easter Sunday, uh, just like we would invite them into Christmas. So uh, invite your friends. Go ahead and be praying that the Lord would give someone for you to invite to reach out to even in these next couple of weeks maybe you'll strike up a friendship and um that that family or that individual can join you at one of our three uh easter services sound good am i missing anything with easter i don't think so, don't think so. cool cool all right uh so what else we got to talk about today y'all the thrill of orthodoxy the th- that was that was pretty good. The thrill of orthodoxy. Um, so Alyssa sent out on social media um, that we are going to start doing a book together. And um, before we do, we'll do a quick Sunday deep dive, talking things sermon, church-related. But um, over the next couple weeks, months, we'll just take a chapter of time going through the thrill of orthodoxy, uh, which is a book the staff has been reading and has been super influential to us. Um, and, and I really think will help shape the vision, the direction of uh, what Redeemer will look like. But uh, first, we're going through the book of Matthew on Sundays. We're, this is week four or five going through. And, uh, and Ms. Chris, you said something this morning that really stuck out, just how much you've loved the book of Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, this isn't the first time you've read the book of Matthew. You've probably spent sure. a lot of times in the Gospels, but what, what has... Um, brought that sentiment to mind about just the appreciation of Matthew. Well, I think I think it it also ties into the book The Thrill of Orthodoxy, but just having a sense of awe mm. um about who God is, who Jesus is, about just the I don't know, through teaching children's lessons over the years through um the gospels, but just as Xander likes to say, to zoom out and... Do it live! I, can do- <laughs> I hit the wrong button. <laughs> zoom out. Zoom out. And to get a bigger, to get a bigger picture of, um, of, of who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And I think, it'll be, I think it'll be good for our church family to, to really get into the nuts and bolts of that. Yeah, I agree. And it's been so interesting just to be in the book of Matthew for five weeks, four or five weeks before we've even really hit mm-hmm. who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. It's been a lot of precursors and even throughout that has been so encouraging and affirming just to me. Um, and so this last week we looked at 
Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness, the 40 days. Uh, and that for me was, uh, I forgot what commentator said it, but uh, when we hear 40 days and 40 nights, it's like, oh, okay, cool. But like, that's five weeks and five days. Yeah. I mean, that is such, for when you change 40 days to, that's almost six weeks. Mm-hmm. It, it, for me, it changed the, flipped the script a little bit on just how hungry he had to have been. And even our family group talking about, I mean, he is fully man. So the hallucinations that could have been taking place, I mean, just the the bodily form, the weakness. So when this passage ends in verse 11 and the angels arrived to take care of him, of course they did. I mean, Jesus had to be as good as dead for not eating for six weeks. Um, and, and we all joke about just being hangry, right? Like, how much does not eating one or two meals affect our behavior and our moodiness and, and all our judgment? And he didn't eat for almost six weeks and still was able to fight off the temptations from the devil, which is just remarkable. So, uh, but I did share yesterday, and <clears throat> we can debrief some of this a little bit if we want to, but as we work through, um, uh, I mentioned yesterday, I'm trying to get better at expressive language. I think as men, we're just always like, I'm angry. It's like, well, okay, but like, let's let's talk about that. What actually makes you angry? And uh, really, it's a it's a sadness and a concern of how susceptible we are to temptations. And and really, on on a two front, one that that we as the church say we have a high view of scripture, um, but what we say doesn't really match what we do. And we can get into this even in, in orthodoxy, the thrill of orthodoxy, but you've got the orthodoxy, right, like the doctrine. You've got orthopraxy, which is the practice. And so we can say we have a high view of orthodoxy. The reality is we don't have a high view of orthopraxy. And so in the same way, we can say we have a high view of Scripture, but in reality, how much of our life and decisions and what we do shaped by Scripture, and that will really show us. Like I could say I love my wife, but if nothing that I do throughout my life models that, shows that you watch the way I live, you know, I mean, you're never home, you're spending all the money, you're not helping with the kids, you're not doing anything, well, do I really love my wife? Oh, yeah, of course I love my wife. Um, so in the same way, we could say we have a high view of Scripture, but but we really don't. And I read some of the statistics that I've read here numerous times, and I'll probably read numerous times more, um, just about how biblically illiterate us as a country is, and and really my go-to is the Benjamin Franklin quote, quote that 82% of uh, people think God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse, uh, which we would all kind of scoff at. Now, that's a Ben Franklin quote, quote, but the statistic continues according to Al Mohler that 81% of Christians believe that, and just that by itself is so antithetical to the gospel. Um, if God helps those who help themselves, then why do we need Jesus? So we've got that side that just really makes me sad that we are all susceptible to temptation. But the other side, and our family group talked about some of this last night, of how much of our life is shaped by temptations and we don't even realize it. I mean, the entirety of the American dream is leading us astray from the gospel and leading us to entitlement, and we deserve this, and we shouldn't go through hard times, we shouldn't go through suffering. I mean, all that is in the American dream, and I'm going to push this off to you all for a second, but all of this that is the American dream, we conflate this with 
what scripture says, and then nine times out of ten we pick the American dream because it's easier. Um, so, so my question for us is, how do we see this really fleshing itself out day in and day out, where um, we we are tempted into sin and don't even realize it because it's just a fish doesn't know it's wet, and Satan can really just kind of sit back and relax because the American dream has already led us astray. He doesn't have to. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so have you all seen examples in your own life or around you that that would uh, lead you to believe that this is more of a widespread issue than not? i say yes. Um, I see it in my personal life, like when I'm dealing with my anxiety. Mm. Um, and it, the devil knows that that is a weak spot of mine, and so that is nine times out of ten where he attacks me at. And, you know, you see that when through social media with comparison and envy and all of the, the things like that. Um, so, I mean, that's how I've s- seen it happen in my own life every day. Yeah. What about you guys? <clears throat> that's a... It's a really good question, especially for um, a Christian who's been a believer for a while. I'll throw myself under the bus as a quote-unquote professional Christian, right? I get paid to read my Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only discovered relatively recently, as Mariah and I are trying to discover, what's our morning routine, what's our evening routine, how do we want to do things, Um Typically, I'm not a fan of reading early in the morning. It takes my brain a while to wake up, um, and I'm actually a natural night owl. So the later it gets, the more attentive I become. Mm-hmm. And so when she said, well, we have this 30 minutes at the beginning of the day, and I want to read Scripture and pray. I said, well, you know, like, I've enjoyed the fact that we pray at the beginning of each day. So like, attaching Scripture, that's a good thing. If you ask me ever, I'm going to say Scripture is my favorite thing. I love it. It's my favorite thing on planet Earth. But... I valued my mornings of silence or just listening to like a political podcast or something of that nature, just a slow, soothing morning with a nice cup of hot tea over diving into the Word with my wife who was saying she wanted to. And it took me a couple of days to realize that while I'm doing this, I'm doing it begrudgingly because my heart says I would rather be plopped on the sofa as opposed to like my reading chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that was when I discovered temptation had not just sunk in, but it was giving birth to sin mm. in my life. And I just wasn't even aware of it because I was just relegating it to, well, I spend all day at, at the church building writing curriculums for our course seminars, thinking about how to improve our systems and things of that nature, preparing for sermons. And that's when I realized temptation had come it had arrived, and I never saw it coming. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be ever vigilant to find those moments where temptation just creeps in. Yeah, because it's never um, you're never going to be tempted by something that doesn't tempt you. I know that sounds reductionistic, but no, it's very true. Uh, your point uh, in the sermon, mm-hmm. um, in your Matthew four one through eleven sermon. Um, if someone came off the street and said, Xander, would you like some black tar heroin? Um, no, thank you. <laughs> if someone said, hey, Xander, here are some um, uh, some inappropriate activities we can join in on. I'm mm-hmm. just It's just not going to get me. Um, yeah. Someone could say, hey, Xander, here's 
uh, a free strip club entry. It's just not going to happen. Mm. There's no part of me that sounds like that's anything other than a miserable time. Mm. But there are plenty of things where you could say, hey, um, instead of reading scripture in the mornings, you value your mornings. You don't feel like your brain's fully awake. Why don't you just sit back, watch another episode of Scrubs. Yeah. Enjoy some enjoy some quiet. You deserve this. You do, because you spend all day at church. And look at, you do your Bible time at night. So that's fine. Yep. You're good. I think I think especially for maybe the younger generation, like my age and younger, and, and uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, because you're clearly it's older. older. <laughs> <laughs> it's that entitlement that's getting all of us. It's that we deserve this. Uh, our parents had it. We can have it. Uh, oh, we got passed up on this job opportunity or this or that. Like, uh, don't they know we deserve this? We're better than that. And uh, biblically, we know that we deserve sin and death. Like, mm. that's what we deserve. Anything outside of that is the grace and mercy of God. So just how the devil can take that temptation and go, well, like, but Adam and Eve, you deserve the fruit. Like, you're taking care of all of this. You're managing all of this. You deserve this. And how subtle that, like you said, can get us in it might be three, four, five days, or never. We might not ever really, really realize how far that temptation has pulled us away. So, so I would be curious in your old generation, Chris. How do y'all see? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Shots fired. How do, how do you see this played out? Um. Well, I I do agree with both of the things that Xander and Alyssa have said. But one of the things that um, that Eddie talks about a lot is. The place where you think you're the strongest is the place where yeah. you're going to be attacked mm. because you, you don't have a guard up against mm. that. So a place that you feel like, oh, yeah, I've got that under control, that's where you're going to be attacked. And that's hard. Yeah. Because yeah, you don't think you have to. You don't think you have to be on That's guard. not where it's going to come. Mm-hmm. It's going to come from somewhere else. Yep. Jeez. The thing you think you have mastered. See this old man wisdom coming in. I appreciate it. <laughs> He's going to kill me for that. That's right. <laughs> uh, no, that is good, though, because that, that is where you let your guard down. Yeah. And that's where it needs to be up the, mo- the most. Because it is that, that idea the greatest strength is your greatest weakness. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. man, sorry, I'm, I'm fleshing that out. I'm playing out in my head right now. Some areas we need to build some. Safe havens in. Because yes. even Bree and I have talked about, um, and, and I don't know, I hope I don't go off rail. Y'all stop me at any point. But marriage for us has been relatively easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we hear people that have, like, like I vividly remember our eighth anniversary because uh, everyone told us one of your first seven years is going to be hell on earth. It's going to be so miserable. <laughs> and when we got to Looking year eight, to I'm like, <laughs> I guess I guess we didn't have one. Like, it was, it was fine. And... Not saying that we don't have hardships and we don't squabble or whatever, but um, it just hasn't been that hard. But I can see that saying because it's not hard, mm-hmm. maybe we don't prioritize date nights like we right. should or spending time together. And and then we could be tempted kind of to your point earlier about going on autopilot and taking it easy and Satan using that as an opportunity to yeah. come in and, and divide us. So. And it, back to the book again about that drift. You don't realize you're drifting. Yeah. You think you're just coasting along, mm. Mm. but your drift never goes in the right direction. That's good. 
Well, anybody want to babysit for us? We'll, do, we'll gladly take it and go on a date night. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, she actually did ask the other day. She's like, can we can we have a little weekend getaway together? I'm like, yeah, we'll do whatever you want. We'll even go to the beach. That's how much I love you because I don't like the beach. But Amen. That's really sad to me. So sad. My heart hurts for you. Yeah. Mine I mean, you just sit there. Exactly. And get sandy and sweaty. <laughs> And exactly. sandy. And see the vastness of the ocean. But it never changes. And see it. <laughs> and see the, all the little grains of sand. Yeah. God's thoughts of you. As sand goes through the hourglass. So too. Are the days of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> I am, as our, I will admit though, as our kids are getting older, I'm enjoying it more. Yeah. Because what we had, I mean... We had three kids under three, and Auburn was five, five or six. So that was chaos. I mean, it yeah. was constantly like someone's going to drown, keep them out of it. But this year we went, and Grady and I went deep-sea fishing. We went and played golf one day. Like, we could go away, and Bree was okay with the other three by herself. Mm-hmm. But there was a season where it was all hands on deck, and maybe that's why it's I'm just, just That's when, when you vacation with small children, you're just doing the same things you do at home in a different location. Mm-hmm. It's not a vacation. No. And there's just more people to apologize to. True. Sorry my kids did that. Sorry my kids. Yeah, and there's no grace or like, oh, yeah, we know your kids. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I vividly remember sand being thrown and the look of the person that the sand hit was, I was like, here we go. I'm about to throw it down on the beach right now. This, It's over. I didn't start this, but maybe I'll finish it. <laughs> but they, they, they forgave him. Anyways, all right, so transitioning, anything else from the sermon? Don't be a heretic. Memorize scripture. <clears throat> yeah, memorize scripture, don't be a heretic. Um, that that was one of my big takeaways personally, is as we're going through the Foundations Guide, I don't know how many people are going through it. All the books are gone, I think, but maybe one or two. So a lot of people have grabbed it, encouraged people to keep keep doing the Bible reading plan, but I have not done a great job of the scripture memorization part. Uh, I've, I've stayed on pace. I've really enjoyed the here journal and going through the scriptures, um, but actually slowing down enough to memorize the scripture. I've not. And um, Chris, I think you said it and I stole it in the sermon. So I owe you credit for this. Um, so this was a Chris Kennedy quote. Uh-huh. This was not me, but in the moment you don't have time to Google that verse. Like when temptation's hitting you, if you don't have it hidden away in your heart, it, it you're it's over. Uh-huh. And so it's not enough to be, just quote unquote familiar with it, but we have to have it memorized, hidden away, so that in those moments we can combat it. Uh, because that was one of the things that we talked about again last night at family group. Um, man, no one, no one calls until today. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the the second temptation, Satan was quoting Psalm ninety one eleven and twelve, and he left the line out. So not only do we have to have Scripture memorized, but we have to be ready to combat when Satan uses Scripture against mm-hmm. us to be able to recognize that's not what that says. That's not what that means. And when people take Scripture out of context when they say something to us. Mm-hmm. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we've we've seen examples, and it might be better not to, to list some of those on podcast world, but um, that's that process called eisegesis where you're making any kind of Scripture seem like what it is for you, and uh, that's just not the way that we honor God's Word or or read it. So 
And then we did, yeah, I don't know how much we would go down the heresy trials, but uh, I did kind of go on a soapbox with um, some modern-day heresy going on that, you know, and, and that we'll talk about it in the book, but um, heresy never looks like heresy. Temptation never looks like temptation. We have to be keenly aware of what's happening and what's going on um, because people are going to spend, really, on temptation and heresy, both are going to, spin it in a way that like this is what's best for people this is what's best for humankind if we love people we would do this it's unfair it's untrue of this and that and um, that's just not the not the reality so um we we can go into the heresy part if you want to or we don't have to <laughs> I, I think it naturally connects with part of the reason we're reading this book um, yeah. as gabe has pointed out and i believe chris pointed out this quotation earlier as well that you do not drift to orthodoxy, you do not drift to the Lord, mm-hmm. you do not drift to conservative theological positions. Yep. So if you want to not become a heretic, that means you have to cling to something because you cannot drift to it naturally. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the thrill of being orthodox mm-hmm. in your understanding, in your practice, in your theology. And, and with that being said, just that mental image, uh, if, if you don't drift, that means that there, there is a current going in the opposite way. So there's no neutrality either. The moment you stop swimming, the drift towards liberalism or temptation or whatever it is naturally begins. So the idea that like, oh, I'm just going to chill out for a while is is a mute point. That is not, not going to happen. So uh, Thrill of Orthodoxy, we'll go ahead and kind of transition over to that. I highly recommend. Uh, there is an audible version. Um, hopefully we'll have some in the book nook over the next couple of weeks. You don't know what a book nook is yet, but you will because it's coming. Uh, it's just going to be a little bookstore. People can uh, pick up books at Redeemer um, for a discounted rate. But uh, this book ha- is pretty new, um, and the title was really appealing to me, and I'd read a couple articles about it. Um, but really just, yeah, the, the thrill of orthodoxy. Xander, you want to hit us with uh, a definition of orthodoxy? You know, I thought you might ask that. I mean, you um, are the human dictionary. I, I, I am. Um, so, orthodoxy is the um, authoritized or the generally accepted theory, doctrine, or practice. Within Christianity, it will have the specific definition of things that the church has held to be true throughout the ages. Right. So, one of the things I've mentioned in sermons really over uh, the last year holy cow year it's almost <laughs> been a year redeemer you've given me some gray hairs don't worry uh no it's been a fantastic year and uh how much church history we have versus what the last 60 years of the church has looked like and the way that this book begins chapter 1 is a simple quote the church faces her biggest challenge not when new errors start to win but when old truths no longer wow, this is the challenge for the church. And so what I think we've seen over the last 60, 70 years is the old truth of orthodoxy, of church history, of um, the practices of the church no longer wow. So we started to invent new things, and uh, we saw the church growth movement really come onto the scene. We saw easy believism um, we, we, we can get into individual things maybe as time goes on, but 
um, just how the last 50, 60 years of church history has um, shifted and changed, not because of new things, but because people have grown weary and bored of the old things, of the thrill of those things have no longer stood. And so this, really the entire book is an argumentation of saying, no, 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 but the, the old things, the orthodoxy is good and right and encouraging and more shaping than anything else can be in our lives. And and so, I mean, even, even for example, I'll use this. Um, for church history, generation after generation, Sundays was known as the Lord's Day. Like that's when the Lord's people will gather on the Lord's Day uh, and – and we don't really hear that word used much anymore. So I used it yesterday just to see uh, how people would react. And no, no one really said much, but um, even how that one phrase connects us in. Or yesterday at partner meeting, we celebrated communion together and how that one act connects us with thousands of years of church history going all the way back to uh, the Lord's Supper, as we talked about with the Seder dinner, the Passover feast with Jesus and his disciples. And so this book is really trying to, make a um, argumentative case of how we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that we should um, not try to recreate the wheel, but the wheel of orthodoxy is actually a good right thing that will shape our faith more than anything else. Is that a, is that a helpful synopsis? Yeah. I'm, I'm preaching so. over here. Oh, yeah. So. Okay. So um, the idea behind this is we're just going to kind of go – uh, chapter by chapter today will just be chapter one, pulling out some of our favorite quotes and things that made us uh, consider, think deeply, ponder on. And and so the hope is that if you're reading along with us, praise God, uh, we'd be curious of your thoughts. But then also, uh, if you're just not a reader, you're not to that um, that time in your life yet, or things are just a little crazy, you can kind of keep along with the book as we go. So uh, I'll kick it over to you guys. What were uh, chapter one is just simply titled "This I Believe," uh, where he's laying the groundwork for what orthodoxy is and and how we uh, naturally gravitate away from that. As Xander and Chris have both alluded to, um, we we don't we don't naturally want to go there. We want to start something new, be different. Uh, we want to be trendsetters for the gospel instead of um, place setters within orthodoxy. So. Um, well, yeah, what were some of y'all's takeaways, thoughts, ideas, quotes? I'm going to, I'm going to stop talking for a (laughs) solid three minutes. Here I go. One of my favorite things that it talks about, um, right towards the very beginning, um, it talks about how your Christian life begins with spiritual astonishment at the glory of the gospel and the goodness and beauty of Christian truth with a wide-eyed surprise of the infant brought into a new world of grace. And then it talks about how the errors and the temptations creep in and you have a spiritual sleepiness and we become sluggish with the scriptures, bored with the Bible, drowsy towards doctrine. Um, And it sums all this up talking about this being spiritual malice. Mm. And it says we should take a closer look at our context to see the forces at work in our world, in our churches, and in us that diminish our devotion. And that was just such a such a deep picture um, that really, really stuck out to me. Like, that is such a good way to put it. We all experience that, and it kind of like Chris said, that drift. Um, and it was just a good imagery. Mm. So the section right after that, 
says church confusion. Uh, and I just want to read a little bit from the church confusion section. If you have the hardback edition of this book, it's on the top of page five. It reads hypocrisy has bolstered the anti-institutional sentiments of many towards the church leading to an explosion of new religious options and narrowly tailored spiritual experiences. Um, I'm not going to throw this church under the bus or um, really allude to it too much more than just to say, um, I saw through social media, someone had hired a um, experiential pastor. Like the, the title of the pastor included the word experience in it. And it's easy for people who are steeped in orthodoxy, who are steeped in just long-standing Christian tradition to understand that Christ is not an experience, the church is not an experience. I don't necessarily care if you love this song or if you hate that song, you're worshiping God. If you don't like the word hallelujah, well, you're still going to be singing it for a long time in heaven. And so if the church service feels long because it went a little over an hour and 15 minutes, well, heaven's going to be a chore. And so reminding of our uh, reminding ourselves that it's not just our actions that are part of the problem here. It's a desire to find narrowly tailored spiritual experiences. And so when people look for a church, typically they'll say, I like this pastor style, but I didn't like their music. Well, that's not what you're looking for. That's not what Redeemer is looking for. It's not what Redeemer is aiming for. We're aiming to be Christ-centered people with an orthodoxical perspective, with an orthopraxy in how we worship. And that's just something that has to come through every single believer individually. And so that should remind us that our hypocrisy has created that. As Gabe constantly points out, the last 50, 60, 100 years of church um, history have not been our glory days. And part of that reason is hypocrisy snuck in, and we made the easy excuse of grace. Mm. Yes, I'm I'm a sinner. Of course I'm a sinner, so of course I sin. But that hypocrisy does not excuse the impact that's going to have on the lives of other people. And that's why we have to put sin to death, not just accepting the roots are there and the weeds will come back up. Like I do in my yard. We have to go out, root them one by one meticulously. Mm. And so that was a huge impact from page five. And, and going into my three minutes is up so I can talk again. Uh, and then I want to kick it over to Chris, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> but going back to Sunday and, and that point really Xander and Alyssa both, um, we can see how temptation has come into the church to make church about you. And, and if it's about you, then it's about the experience. It's about how it makes you feel. And man, that is a lie that Satan has got us to buy into and has wreaked havoc amongst the church. When the affection and the point of church is no longer to glorify God and edify the saints, but it's to entertain and appease the masses and we have lost. And if Satan can get that going, man, he's he's not omnipresent, right? He can't be everywhere at once. So if he can get that that top spinning, then he can back out and go do something else. Move on to somebody yeah, else. because now the American church, as we know it, is just gonna implode. We're yeah. we're walking towards the cliff and he's off doing whatever else he wants because we're clearly losing. Mm-hmm. So um anyways. Yeah. That leads to this next section that's um, titled Christian Complacency. And it says, We face the danger of longing for the past while fearing for the future. And this mix of nostalgia and fear leads us into a state of complacency, a missionless faith. We file in and out of the sanctuary week after week, content to recite the same words with our lips, but our hearts remain unstirred by the truths we confess 
and we are less likely to invite others to believe the good news. Complacent Christianity causes compartmentalization, Mm. a convenient separation of Christian truth from the beliefs that frame our day-to-day activities. And I know um, if you were in our family group when Eddie and I gave our testimony, that was one of the things that we said early on in our Christian life was um, the compartmentalization. We were able to compartmentalize um, my church life versus my daily life. And that's something that's that's difficult to get over, but I think this thrill of orthodoxy solves that problem. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it drops the secular sacred divide. Exactly, everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. And then that next paragraph says Christianity becomes just one aspect of a busy life. When we believe what we believe, we're told isn't is as important as how we live, and even then, it's fine if our life choices don't line up with Christian teaching as long as our faith helps us to be true to ourselves and keeps us from hurting anyone. Mm. And so, just realizing the error in that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And orthodoxy does that. Yeah. And, and again, not trying to... Um, talk so bad about the church over the last 1600 years but that's as i've mentioned before on sundays that's almost what the church has trained us to do yeah is it doesn't really matter how you live at the week if you're here on sunday mm-hmm. if you bring a friend and if you tithe you're good yeah. well you didn't get a badge if you went to school and did jesus stuff but mm-hmm. if you were there every morning for a sunday you got a badge at the end of the year sure did you got one didn't you Chris? sure did i had a lot of them had a whole line of those little perfect attendance and, pins. Yeah, my mom had one. And and again, some so ways that should be celebrated. It should. That is a good thing. Just because yeah. yeah, two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. It can be good that you were here every Sunday, but it's also necessary that you go to every aspect of your life and keep it all sacred. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be good if you're there every Sunday, but not I mean, but it but what good is it if it didn't change your life? Yeah. And then the opposite, I mean, right now we've talked about before uh, the average churchgoer attends church 1.7 times a month. And, you know, we could hypothesize on the reality of that, but I would, I think it's the complacency you've talked about. I think it's the boredom. Like, well, I mean, church just doesn't do it for me. Uh, some of our church forefathers would are rolling in their grave when mm. that phrase gets said and. Because it's not about you, it's about the church and it's about the gospel. And so so the author in chapter one really takes this idea and, and points towards creeds and just how historic creeds have been. And and I think we uh we talked about biblical illiteracy yesterday. Uh, we take for granted the fact that reading is taught to all of us for free in public education and we have a copy of God's word um most of the time for free. You have free access to the Bible. But throughout church history, people were illiterate, and they didn't necessarily have a copy of God's Word, especially before printing press or when it was illegal to own them. And and so that the way that they would convey the gospel was always through story form, and, and most of the time it would be through creeds. So you've got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, um, Athanasius' Creed, and um, I, I am curious for these set to be such a staple in church history, how many people— uh, us here, the four of us, 
grew up in a church that ever would recite creeds together. I, mean, I know Xander and I did Yeah, we not. went to the same church, so I can't lie on this one. <laughs> yeah, we, we did not. I did not know creeds existed until probably college. We stopped singing the, um, the doxology mm. when I was a little kid. I have a vague memory of a couple times of us doing it, mm. and then it was gone. Yeah. Because we had new modern worship. Well, we, we sang the doxology a lot. But no creeds? Early on. No creeds for you? Mm-hmm. Creeds for you? Yeah, so I mean that's just one of those things that it's just again interesting that that was part of church history for thousands of years, and then in this last sixty to hundred years, I really need to find the date so I can quit guessing. Early late sixties, early seventies. Are you talking about the big evangelical movement? Yeah, church growth movement. Um, Let me be a hundred percent sure before I say something. (laughs) I have Google in front of me, so it won't take a second. Uh, But I know for for us at the, the last church I pastored in Delonica, we taught through the Apostles' Creed, and we would recite it together. And we'll read it here in a second as we end out this podcast, but it was just helpful. And again, it's one of those things that when you say it, just like the Lord's Supper, you are tying yourself in with thousands of years of church history, uh, which is just incredible. The Apostles' Creed is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, creed. And um, so you, along with 2,000 years of church history, reciting this together is just a Incredible thing to see. Uh, a couple other minor things that will be themes throughout the rest of the book. Um, Trevin Wax, the author, connects the opposite of orthodoxy is heresy. And I think that's just something, again, as we start really defining what orthodoxy is, what it isn't, um, we have to keep that in the back of our mind that, that the opposite of orthodoxy is not a soft idea or, well, you don't necessarily have to practice orthodoxy. The opposite will take care of you too. No, the opposite is heresy. Um, and again, I used that in the sermon yesterday, but I think a lot of people hear the word heresy and forget church history. When you're talking heretics would be burned at the stake. I mean, they would be murdered. They would be killed. Heresy was nothing uh, that people handled lightly. And and in our day and age now, it's, it's really just not a big deal. Um, but I think for me, the choicest quote of this is, as Xander mentioned before, if you have the hard cut, hard back book, uh, chapter 19 says this, this is the adventure to bind our hearts to something ancient and enduring with faith that the faith will outlast all fads and fashions. We're not digging in, but digging down to the bedrock of our faith so that we can stand. The church marches on, not because we are faithful in every aspect. We haven't been and we won't be but because Jesus himself is faithful and he promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And so shaking off our spiritual slumber, we join hands with millions of others across space and time and saying with boldness and confidence, this I believe. Uh, I think that summarizes the idea of orthodoxy in chapter one pretty well. So uh, before we end and, and read through the Apostles' Creed, anybody else have anything on chapter one? or you find church history over there? So um, I wanted to say 1965, but that was the founding of a spe- like a particular school, which then started to train people up and send them out for the big Jesus movement, which there's even a movie now about the 1970s and the Jesus movement. Mm-hmm. But the church growth movement, which is a metric-based system, so it's a non-orthopraxy perspective, because orthopraxy would lead you to disciples making disciples. Mm. Um this Jesus movement was completely driven off of how many people can we get into a building 
And then how many hands can we see way, like raised into the air, just get them dunked and keep on going. Um, and that really began in 1920 through 23 when a couple of key members got together. So I was starting to do the math and I realized it is literally 2023. So it's right at 100 years. Mm. Wow. That was way off. So it's 58 to 100 years because 58 years um, ago was when the school of church growth movement was created. But it was 100 years ago, pretty much to the day. Mm. that this was kicked off and spurred. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So 60 to 100 years, somewhere in that in that time mm-hmm. frame. Any other thoughts? Ladies, what do y'all got? I do. Um, on page 6, it says the diagnosis, and it talks about um, in every generation we risk losing our wonder at the glory of Christian truth and the enduring witness of the church amid chaos and confusion we can easily turn our focus on ourselves and, as a result, forget God. Mm. And I feel like that's exactly where um, where our culture is. And then it gives an example. Um, Alyssa and I were talking about this earlier, how the writer does such a great job of giving you vivid word pictures and so you can see what he's talking about. And he says, it's as if we have inherited a vast estate sprawling grounds surrounding beautiful buildings filled with priceless heirlooms, but we stay cooped up in a broom closet, Mm. complacent and bored, with no desire to explore all that we have been given in Christ. And so that's that's tying back to our discussion in Matthew. Um, God's given us so much, and we just are complacent and bored and... We need to be expl- get out of the broom closet and be exploring the vastness and the treasures that he's given us. Mm. Mm. So I have a good friend. Uh, he'll he'll be on the podcast one of these days, Cameron Ford, and he was uh, revitalizing a church in Atlanta. And I'll be honest, no offense, Cameron, but when you used to say this, it used to drive me crazy. Uh, but he talked about his church it was a historic church downtown Atlanta. That the old church is the new cool church. And I was like, that's just dumb. You know, like that's <laughs> a gimmicky kind of thing. But now, 10 years later, like he was so right that, that the old church, church history is the new cool church, that there's thousands of years of like you were saying, uh, or the, and the book was saying, of history that we can explore and dive into mm-hmm. that will lead us to the richness just of the gospel. Yeah. And it really fights against the celebrity culture of our day, right, where we're not talking about a singular pastor or thing, but we're talking a lot about uh, just watching God move in miraculous ways through thousands of years of history uh, because the church is the only thing that remains, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at countries have fallen, nations have fallen, but what has prevailed? The church. And it's, trust me, it's not because of men, and it's not because of our wittiness and our fads, but it's because it's the bride of Christ and he's going to sustain it to the end. Yeah. So, uh, Xander, do you have something? No, I was just, you know, uh, when you really want to say just amen to something 10,000%, one of the major reasons that I want to endorse this book um, as well to everybody is the simplicity of these arguments. Like it might feel a little bold to talk about orthodoxy and, creeds if you've never read creeds before it's kind of a new thing and it feels steeped in age and how am i supposed to interpret these things 
but Wax does a great job in this book just presenting these, um, I'm going to call them arguments, these ideas to you and reminding you that they're simplistic, they're straightforward, and he even has a small section in there where he just goes, if this feels dull to you, that's because you've already been trapped. Mm. That um, the That's his diagnosis, is that we feel that orthodoxy, theology is dull, um, but I would love to talk to you all about my favorite sports team or the book that I recently read or just crazy the amount of pollen we had lately. But if you start to talk about theology, then everyone gets what I like to call um, their Jesus voice, where they go from a normal tone to, um, uh, well, you know, uh, whispery and raspy and I don't know. And um, But we can talk boldly about the faith when we know that we're steeped in history, we know we're steeped in theology, and we can speak confidently. Mm. And that's when Scripture no longer is dull in its theological practice, but it becomes exciting. It becomes, dare I say, thrilling. Look at that. <laughs> Do you see what I did there? Pretty good, pretty good. So it it really is a great read. And so if you are not already joining us, I encourage you to join us. And there is an audible version as well, which makes that easy for commuting to or from work. Yes, it does. Yep, yep. And it's a great companion for holding the book in your hand too. Yeah, because you do both. I do both. I like to listen to it, but then I like to go back and read it and hold the book in my hand and underline and Mm. mark things that stood out. But you are the classic overachiever, too. Mm-hmm. So, No, it just takes me a minute. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. I, need, I have to be on repeat. Any, anything else? The only other thing I had is on the, the very first page, he says, for mom and dad who passed down the treasure. Yep, yep. And if we want future generations to be in awe and wonder, we have to pass down the treasure, and we have to present it as a treasure. As a treasure, yeah. I was thinking about that even last week, trying to preach through Jesus being fully man and fully God. Uh, I am so thankful that our church fathers fought through that, discovered that, and solidified that as doctrine so I don't have to. Right. All I have to do is say this is truth. This they I did the believe. hard work of figuring it out, yeah. So I will, um, if, if that anybody else... I'll read the Apostles' Creed, and then the outro music will happen, and uh, we will see you guys next time. But I will, I will leave us with this. And let me, let me give a quick caveat. If you've never heard the Apostles' Creed, I'm going to use the word, or the creed is going to use the word Catholic Church. Don't think Catholic Church as we know now. Think universal church. Um, and if we ever say this together as a church, maybe we can change that. But uh, for this, I'll leave it in there. Here's what it says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Day Podcast. The song is Fire on the Ridge by St. Howard. With what you have just heard, go and be faithful.